Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Kate Kraft from the University of Michigan talking about resident wellness. Um, we're at the top of the hour, so I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to today's COVID lecture, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to all of you. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, my name is Kate Kraft. I'm Associate Professor in the Department of Urology at the University of Michigan. I'm also the Residency Program Director, and I also want to introduce Katie Marchetti, who's one of our PGY2 residents, who's graciously agreed to help me out today as moderator and we'll be organizing our Q&A at the end. So I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to all of you today about resident wellness in urology training. I know this is not your typical Campbell's lecture or information that might serve you well in the in-surfix exam, but I think it's a really, really important topic. And I have no disclosures, but my um, really my only disclosure is that I'm a a program director who's very invested, you know, very, very invested in resident wellness and want to share with you a little bit um, of some of the studies I've, I've looked at over the last year or so, um, and also a little bit about the wellness program that we've created at the University of Michigan. So I'll start off by talking about physician wellness and burnout in general, not just in urology, but in medicine in general and then focus on burnout specifically within the field of urology. Then I wanna talk about, kind of take a 30,000 foot view and step back and talk a little bit about what exactly is wellness and share a little bit about what we've done at the University of Michigan with our wellness program, what's been working, what we could do better and tie that all together, hopefully really discussing some future directions and um, how we can look at this um, in years to come. I do want to say that this is this lecture is targeted around resident wellness in general. I know that the issue of wellness has drastically changed in terms of our view of it with the COVID pandemic. And I won't be touching on COVID specifically, but I definitely think that's worth discussion in the end. So a bit about physician wellness and burnout in general. When we look at the ACGME common program requirements for all training programs across the country, we see that the word burnout is mentioned seven times and the word well-being, which I kind of substitute for wellness, is mentioned 33 times. So you can see that this is something that's taken really seriously by the ACGME. Some phrasing that you'll see in this includes psychological, emotional, and physical well-being are critical in the development of the competent, caring, and resilient physician. Well-being requires that physicians retain the joy of medicine while managing their own real-life stresses. And programs have the same responsibility to address well-being as other aspects of resident competence. The word burnout first came about in 1980 um, and was described by Dr. Freudenberger, who is a German-born American psychologist who made significant contributions in the study and treatment of stress, fatigue, and substance abuse. And he described burnout as the extinction of motivation or incentive, especially where one's devotion to a cause or relationship fails to produce the desired results. Burnout essentially has three different components to it. It's described as a physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or distress. And 
the three, um, really the three facets of this include emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a decreased sense of personal accomplishment. And the reason that that's important is because a lot of the studies looking at burnout look specifically at these three different domains. Why is this happening in medicine? Well, there are increased demands for medical care, of course, uh, really accelerated in this um, stressful time with COVID. Uh, we see that pressures on increased physician productivity lead to decreased time with our patients. We have narrowing insurance networks that decrease patient access to care. We have to go through a lot of administrative paperwork to get prior authorizations for our patients just to see us. Of course, um, I could go on and on about the limitations of the electronic health record, and of course that's been a source of um, stress for many physicians. There are a lot of regulatory requirements uh, that surround the electronic medical record and other means for seeing patients. For example, meaningful use has become a metric that's been really important over recent years. And then other metrics like, what do our patients think of us? What are our health grades ratings? What are our vitals ratings? How fast do we close our charts? What are our views? So we have a lot of external pressures that lead to burnout in general in medicine. And why is this important? Because burnout has been shown to lead to depression, suicidality, the increased risk of medical errors, decreased patient satisfaction, increased cost of healthcare, to name just a few. And I would argue to say that these are obviously all very pressing, important issues. So a lot of the, the um, best work that's been done looking at physician wellness has come out of Dr. Tate Shanafelt, who if you're tuning in from Stanford, I'm sure you know who he is. He's the chief wellness officer at Stanford and um, has done a lot of really robust work looking at burnout in physicians as compared to the general population. So this study was published last year and looks at survey data from the years 2011, 2014, and 2017 in which U.S. physicians were surveyed using uh, American Medical Association master file to get a sample of physicians from all different specialties and then they compared to a survey probability-based sample of, US, of the U.S. working population that was matched for age. All of the um, general population were employed. And as you can see from this graph, there was a significant difference in terms of rates of burnout between physicians and the general population over the course of, of really this past decade. And you can see a little bump in 2014, some of whom would attribute to the electronic medical record regulations. They also assessed work-life integration. This was measured by a single question on their survey, whether respondents had enough time to spend focusing on their personal life or time with family. And again, as you can see, physicians are not doing quite as well as the general population with decreased satisfaction with respect to work-life integration. And again, this was found to be statistically significant over the recent years. In this same population that was surveyed, um, basically close to 36,000 physicians were surveyed regarding burnout and medical errors. And they used the MASLAC burnout inventory, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. This is kind of the instrument that's mainly used when assessing burnout. They also included questions surrounding fatigue, depression, and their perception of their work unit safety and quality. And from this survey, there were 18.6% um, response rate. They had 67% um, male physicians, an average age of 56 years, and they worked on average about 50 hours per week. So this was felt to be very representative of the um, current uh, physician population. 
And the results were pretty stark. Um, so that about 39% reported an error in judgment, 20% reported uh, admitting that they had made a wrong diagnosis, and 13% admitted making a technical mistake during uh, performance of a procedure. And then when asked about mort morbidity and mortality, um, close to 10% admitted that they had caused either a major permanent morbidity or that a patient had died in their care. And while that might seem like a small proportion, it's uh, a rather alarming number in my opinion. 47% reported high emotional exhaustion, 35% a high rate of depersonalization, and 16% a rate of low personal accomplishment. So again, very concerning results here. They then tried to look at factors associated with perceived medical errors and found that burnout, fatigue, and sense of work unit safety all had an increased odds of being associated with per, at least the perception of committing medical errors. So their conclusions were that physician burnout, fatigue, and work unit safety grade are all independently associated with making major medical errors, or at least the perception of it. And that interventions really should be targeted not just on making the workplace environment safer, but in physician well-being in order to reduce medical errors. What about the cost of burnout and how that relates to um, physician turnover? Um, so this study was done by a group where their objective was to estimate burnout associated costs related to physician turnover and physicians reducing their work hours at both national and organizational levels. So they carried this out using rather complex methodology, a cost consequence analysis with a mathematical model. And I won't go into all the nitty gritty, but basically their conclusions were that burnout costs $4.6 billion a year, which is not an insubstantial amount of money. And when they used a hypothetical organization model where they essentially comprise a hospital system consisting of a thousand physicians and broke it down by specialty and age, they, they found that per physician, burnout can cost $7,600 each year. So this is costing us money, and really um, these findings suggest that there's substantial economic value for policy and organizational expenditures and for burnout reduction programs for physicians. Now I'll talk a little bit about the literature on wellness and burnout, in, specifically within urology. So using the um, Shannon Felt survey data, if you take a deeper dive, back in 2011, burnout rates were reported among urologists as high as 41%, and those climbed to about 64% in 2014. And the AUA did a survey back in 2016 asking questions within the Maslach Burnout Inventory and found similar results at 41% burnout rates for physicians, for urologists who were under 65 years of age. This has been a topic of discussion though over not just this most recent decade, but since the early 2000s. So in Germany, back in 2001, they published a study in which they looked at levels of burnout among physicians working in either a hospital setting or in a private practice setting. And then they also broke that down by whether or not urologists were in training or they were in established practice. And then they also looked at age. And they found that when they, and they used the Maslach burnout inventory as well for this study. And they found that when they looked at whether or not urologists were working in a hospital versus private practice, that in general, the emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment rates were higher, um, and, and they were statistically significant for depersonalization. 
whether a urologist was in training or an established practice and had completed training, the numbers were still very similar. So again, uh, everything in the different domains of burnout was essentially higher and depersonalization specifically was statistically significant. And then finally, when looking at age, whether urologists were 45 or under versus 45 or older, again, they found that emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a sense of accomplishment for the most part were higher in the younger group, and again, statistically significant with respect to depersonalization. So they found that what might be protective against burnout is being in a private practice and being older, more established. Um, and this was thought to be maybe the fact that these urologists had more personal relationships to their patients and maybe had less hierarchy to deal with in the workplace. So um, this was kind of the beginning of the conversation in terms of of burnout in urologists. A more recent study that was done out of Ireland and the United Kingdom also used Maslach burnout inventory um, to survey urologists in, in practice in these two countries, and they had a 42% response rate, which was pretty good. And when they looked at emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment, they found that there were moderate to high levels of this across the board among urologists. They found that 15% resorted to drugs or alcohol to deal with their burnout, and 8% resorted to, um, to counseling or some other uh, form of professional help. 80% felt that burnout was important enough that it definitely should be evaluated. And then they broke it down a little bit further to look at specific stressors that were contributing to burnout. And on this graph, if you look at everything that is above the blue line here, these are things that could potentially impair function. So on the, on the y-axis is a Likert scale that essentially um, measures stress, and on the x-axis there's uh, different factors that come into play, and anything that's on the far left of the x-axis are factors that could potentially be ameliorated in order to, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to um, decrease burnout rates, and specifically administrative workload Overall work volume and lack of institutional resources were felt to be the things that could be targeted from this study. This is also from Shannon Falt's work. I think most of you have probably seen this graph before and looking at rates of burnout and mapping them with rates of satisfaction with work-life balance, you took all different specialties and mapped it out. And you can see that what's really concerning is that urologic surgery is in the far right-hand side of the red box there showing that we not only have pretty much the highest rates of burnout short of maybe emergency medicine or a couple other specialties, but also have very low rates of, of satisfaction with work-life balance. And I think in our community, this, this was felt to be very surprising data. So why is this? Well, a couple of studies have looked into this specifically within urology. Um, this study came out of UNC it was published a couple of years ago, and they looked at the um, concept of administrative burden through the lens of you know, whether or not scribes were going to help reduce that. And they did a pilot project where they assigned six scribes who were robustly trained over a finite period of time, and then, um, excuse me, six urologists who were um, paired with scribes who were trained over a finite period of time. And they had, um, these urologists had ascribe one day per week in their clinic over the course of three months. And you'll see that um, in their study, they found the number of clinic sessions didn't increase, but they did find that they were much more productive in increasing the number of, um, 
of visits and then increasing the number of uh, RVUs as well. So they, it was, um, they were able to bring uh, more patients to the door and they were able to bring in more money as well. They also surveyed the patients to find out whether or not their satisfaction was any different with the scribes in place. And they surveyed the providers as well. And you'll see from this graph that there really wasn't any major difference with respect to patient satisfaction scores. And when they surveyed regarding different domains of, of provider satisfaction, you'll see that over the course of that three months that they um, did have an increase with respect to things like um, perceived patient satisfaction, quality of documentation. And these findings were statistically significant with respect to timeliness of documentation and overall, overall provider satisfaction. So it was felt to be a very successful pilot. And um, while this is only one potential solution, definitely something that could help reduce burnout. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit more and talk more specifically about wellness and burnout in urology residency. We know in general that among trainees that burnout is as prevalent as 40 to 80 percent across subspecialties and that this leads to lower in-service exam scores, poor health and exercise habits, and other adverse outcomes. This study was published in JAMA in 2018 and I would encourage all of you to take a look at it. It's a pretty um, landmark study and they basically had a prospective cohort of over 4,700 US resident physicians who were enrolled from the first year of medical school. And then they were followed into their second year residency. So when they started the study, they had no idea who was gonna go into what specialty. So ultimately only 59 participants ended up choosing urology as a field. So it's only 1.6% of, of the cohort. You have to take that into account. But regardless, the data, um, pretty telling. So they found that compared to all specialties that burnout rates in, among these urologists were 63.6% with an absolute risk difference of 20 and a relative risk of 1.5, which is actually the highest compared to what they considered the reference, which, which was internal medicine residents. And so basically their conclusion was that urology trainees are at the greatest risk for burnout among all specialties. So again, very concerning data here. This study was conducted out of Georgetown. Um, they've really done a lot of great work, and if you're tuning in from there, then um, should, I'm sure you're very familiar with this work. Um, and those, some of you may have even participated in this survey. Um, but this group did a survey of over 1,000 urology residents a couple years ago. They had a 20.9% response rate and found that burnout rates were 68%. So again, really, really alarming. And they did um, a multivariate logistic model controlling for gender, relationship status, work hours, and resident level, and basically looked at different outcomes, including whether or not these residents would choose urology again as a career, whether or not they would choose um, a medical career in general again, or if they would choose academic urology. And again, very alarming results in the sense that um, overall it was felt that the that choosing urology, choosing medicine, choosing academics was neg negatively affected by burnout. They found that age, gender, exercise, um, and other factors basically didn't, didn't really um, play a role and were not significant. But they did find that reading for relaxation and time with family were significantly protective against burnout. They also found that uh, the number of hours that you work uh, would, of course, be directly related to burnout as well. 
and um, this was considered statistically significant. And this graph always makes me cringe when I see that residents report they work more than 80 hours as a, as a program director. So, um, and, that, and this makes sense that, you know, the more you work, the more likely you are to exhibit burnout. So burnout rates were as high as almost 78% for those that were working more than 80 hours. I also found that structured mentorship as well as access to mental health services were protective against burnout and that if you had difficult access to mental health services or mental health services completely unavailable that these were um, definitely had uh, significantly increased odds of leading to burnout. Um, again, very alarming numbers here. And finally, I want to draw your attention to this study that is in press, um, this was published out of the group that is associated with the FIRST trial, and you may be familiar with that. The FIRST trial stands for Flexibility in Duty Hour Requirements for Surgical Trainees, and it was a trial to better understand the relationship between um, resident wellness and patient outcomes, the, this particular trial um, uh, from the FIRST trial group. And they took survey data um, assessing wellness and psychiatric well-being during the um, ab site. This was a, done um, specifically in general surgery residents, so not urology, but I do think that the training models are similar, so it's important data to know. So they surveyed uh, close to 7,400 general surgery residents, and they also looked at NISQIP data, so you're probably familiar with the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program through the American College of Surgeons, and this database um, basically tracks outcomes at um, different institutions. And so they were looking at how um, patients were doing at the institutions where these residents were training, and they had several objectives. They wanted to look at the prevalence of self-reporting of medical errors among general surgery trainees. They wanted to look at, oops, sorry, association between uh, resident wellness and self-reported medical errors, and then they wanted to look at an association between the program level resident wellness and then measure that to post-operative patient outcomes at their institutions. And they found that 91.8% reported emotional exhaustion at least once a year, and about a third reported at least weekly. 70% reported depersonalization at least once a year, 25% reporting at least weekly, and almost half reporting depersonalization at least monthly. And then 76.6% had cumulative burnout at least once a year, with 23% reporting at least weekly, and again, nearly half at least monthly. So again, these are very alarming numbers. And a near-miss medical error was reported by 22.5% of residents, so about a quarter and a medical error that, was, that resulted directly in patient harm was reported by about 7% of these residents. And they found that emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, overall burnout, and then a sense of poor psychiatric well-being all had increased odds in terms of reporting a near-miss medical error. And then when you look at reporting an error that resulted in harm, you can see that those odds increased even more for those that reported emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, overall burnout, and poor psychiatric well-being. So again, this is really, really concerning. But when you look at the outcomes data, you'll see that the odds ratios all hover around one. So basically what this means is that while these residents are burnt out, the patients overall are actually doing as well as other, at other institutions where residents may feel less burnt out. 
And that was true whether it was with respect to morbidity, mortality, and all uh, various postoperative outcomes. And this graph is just an extension of that showing the same. So the idea here is that there is poor wellness among general surgery residents, and it's associated with an increased self-reported medical error, but there's really no difference in the actual objective outcomes for their patients that are treated at the same hospital. And so the question is, is the burnout leading, or excuse me, or this perception of medical errors leading to burnout? Does the burnout stress out residents to the point that their perception is augmented? Um, so the discussion from this is really to focus on interventions that improve resident wellness and be sensitive to the fact that these perceptions and medical errors can have a huge psychological burden on our, on our surgical trainees. So I think that we need to take this into consideration as well with respect to urology training. I'm gonna shift gears and talk a little bit about what is wellness, and I don't claim to be a wellness expert or have the answer to that question, but this is something that I've recently as a program director explored and just wanna share some thoughts with you. So the National Institute for Wellness has a lot of uh, different domains or dimensions that they talk about with respect to what constitutes wellness. Some use six different dimensions, some eight. Um, it depends on kind of who you talk to and what's considered important. The National Institute of Wellness says that mindfully focusing on wellness in our lives builds resilience and enables us to thrive amidst life changes. And I think that's a really important concept, the concept of resilience. And the idea is that wellness is not an absence of adverse emotion. So I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Inside Out by Pixar. It's cute and basically shows that, you know, we're, we can't just exist with, with joy alone. We have, we have to deal with our other emotions and building resilience helps us do that. And I think that's essentially what the National Wellness Institute is getting at, that it's not all kumbaya and, and happiness all the time, but that life is hard and that we need to develop the tools in order to be able to, to handle that. And that's what our goal is at the University of Michigan. We really want to um, share some tools and, and tips and tricks and try to um, instill some sense of resilience in our trainees so that when they do go into practice that they're prepared and able to combat the things that can lead to burnout and chip away at their wellness. So this is our mission um, to train clinically well-rounded urologists who are poised and motivated to become the next generation of innovators and field and leaders in the field of urology. And we take that very seriously. This is our group. You can see Katie up at the top in the middle there. Um, and we, I'm just, just so thrilled to work with these men and women every day. They really um, are fa absolutely fantastic. And um, you know, I always say they help me get out of bed every day. It's what, why I do what I do. I'm gonna share a little bit about how we've designed our wellness program at the University of Michigan. And again, we don't claim to be the experts here, but we, we decided to select five different domains that we felt were really important physical health, social connection, mental health, humanitarianism, and work-life integration. And I'll touch on each of these. So I don't think anyone could argue the benefits of physical health. We could probably spend a whole lecture talking about that. Um, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services basically says that physical activity fosters normal growth and development. It can make people feel better, function better, sleep better and reduce a large number of chronic diseases. So again, we could talk about this all day, really. 
So as part of this, our, um, our residents, they get a, a free membership to an on-campus gym. Um, they have state-of-the-art uh, of equipment. They're, they are, have access at all hours. Um, and hopefully it integrates well with their work hours. And um, th this picture is taken from our annual end of the year spinning class. So we celebrate the end of the year with a spinning class and then kick off the year with running circuits with our chair, Dr. Palpatu at his gym with his personal trainer. So it's pretty intense, but, but um, always a great time. Um, we take mental health very seriously. Um, we know that mental health counseling has been shown to decrease emotional exhaustion. It reduces sick leave. Um, participation in stress management programs has been shown to decrease medication errors and malpractice claims. So um, obviously this is extremely important. You saw in some of the studies that I presented the importance of having access to mental health counseling. Um, so we have very robust mental health services and counseling at uh, University of Michigan. We're very fortunate in that regard. At the beginning of every year, we um, have a seminar with our experts from our Office of Counseling and Workplace Resilience. And we make sure that everyone has the phone numbers for counseling services. We make sure they know all the services that are provided and that they, that they know that it's completely confidential. Um, we also have, everyone has access to uh, Headspace, free access to Headspace. And if um, you have used this, I know you know it's a great app. It teaches you the basics of meditation. Um, and if you haven't used it, I would strongly encourage you to, to check it out. And if your institution doesn't support this um, or doesn't fund it, I would go to your GME and advocate for it because it's a really wonderful tool. It's been especially useful for me during the COVID pandemic. I have to admit that I wasn't always a meditation and mindfulness. Um, I didn't really always understand the benefits of it. Um, but I have drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and I find it this to be very, very helpful and just kind of, um, again, taking that 30,000-foot view and understanding what's really important. And we, um, last year for our program, we brought in a meditation and mindfulness expert who taught us what it means to be mindful and how to meditate, and kind of just the basics. And I think we found, you know, everyone found that very helpful. And it's not for everyone, but it's at least a tool that you can use in order to be able to um, kind of take that mental uh, step back. We focus a lot on work-life integration. What does that really mean? I think I'm constantly striving to figure, figure this one out. Um, we host a cooking class every year. So last year we went to Sir La Table and learned how to cook and, um, you know, we're able to take home the recipes. And um, this year during the COVID pandemic, we've been, we were unfortunately not able to, to have our cooking class, but we've been um, sharing with each other on a weekly team call um, what we've been cooking and we're putting together a COVID cookbook of all our favorite recipes that we've tried. Um, we also offer protected time to our residents. We have a five-year program and so it's really hard to squeeze in time for research and other things. Um, we offer a half-day protected time per week and um, it's encouraged to use that time for scholarly work but of course if our residents need to you know, go to the doctor, take their car in for service, you know, things like that then that's protected time that we honor um, and we recognize that everyone needs to have uh, a bit of time to kind of um, get done what they need to get done. So I think we could also spend a whole lecture just arguing the benefits of, of giving, um, giving of yourself to others. And we do that every day in medicine, but I would argue that when you're doing it on a level that's outside of medicine, it makes you think a little bit differently um, humanitarianism and volunteering connect you to others. There's been tons of studies that show that it's good for your mind and body, that 
combats depression, brings you a sense of purpose, and brings fun and fulfillment. And so we take that very seriously and have incorporated that as one of our domains into our wellness program. So each fall around the holiday season, we work at a local food bank um, called Food Gatherers, where we package up food for those in need. I think the first year we did frozen asparagus, and then the next year we did we packed up frozen cherries. So I, I'll never look at those foods the same way. Um, after you've packed 1,200 pounds of frozen asparagus, it's, it kind of ruins it for you for a couple of days. But it was really fun, a really great way to give back and a great way to build some com camaraderie. And so we try to do something like this each year as part of our wellness program. We also give back on a global scale. We have global missions and our residents have the opportunity to travel abroad with our faculty in order to serve those who are underserved. And I think this is a really important way to gain perspective, um, especially in our field. So we have opportunities to go to Belize and Kenya, um, among others, and, and that those opportunities are growing. So we're looking for ways to get our residents more involved in global missions. And then the final domain is social connection. And we know that social connection, um, again, studied, lots of studies uh, show that it improves physical health and mental and emotional well-being. And there was one study that actually showed that a lack of social connection is a greater detriment to health than obesity, smoking, or high blood pressure. And I think we've all been feeling this in particular during the COVID pandemic and um, coming up with creative ways to, to maintain that connection. So just a professional way we stay connected is through our tour de consult, which is our consult race. Um, and this was established by Julian Wan, who's one of my partners in pediatric urology. He uh, created this 13 years ago to help motivate residents to see consults. And basically our residents are broken up into different teams and he, um, he organizes it as if it were the Tour de France uh, bike race so that every month is a stage and uh, residents uh, get points for how many consults they see. And it gets pretty competitive because Dr. Juan offers really, really um, exceedingly expensive prizes at the end of the year and gives our residents things like MacBook, laptops, and stuff like that. So it's, um, it gets to be really fun. It's a great way to develop kind of that sense of connection around work. You can see that over the years, our number of consults have climbed steadily. And I don't think this is because we have more urology uh, patients hitting the door, but I think the motivation has gone up year by year. And we also establish professional connections from the get-go. As soon as our residents hit the door, um, they are paired with a mentor. So day one of intern year, they have a mentor who oversees their professional and personal development throughout their career. And mentorship is not limited to that one faculty mentor, of course, but we find that it's really important to have that constant relationship um, really to make sure that our residents are doing okay. And of course, we have, a, like many programs, we have a lot of social events, um, barbecues, going to football games, things like that. And um, of course, uh, we're very much looking forward to being able to do this again soon. So what are we going to do in the future with our program? Well, we hope to build and grow. Um, we don't know if it's working, so we hope to maybe do some metrics to assess, um, you know, I mentioned the Maslach burnout inventory. It's a very uh, useful tool in order to kind of assess rates of burnout. So I'd encourage you all to incorporate this into your training program as well. Um, I mentioned the five different domains that we centered our program around and I've been thinking, well, what is holding that center? Um, and I think uh, it's purpose, finding a sense of purpose. And that's something that I really want to use as kind of the keystone for our program in the future. And why purpose? Why is this important? 
Well, going back to thinking about the Wellness Institute and resilience, um, when you think about what Nietzsche said, he who has, or she, who has a why to live can bear almost any how. So if you have a sense of purpose, something that gets you out of bed every day, something that really drives you, then you will be able to withstand even the toughest, toughest times. And Simon Sinek talks a lot about this in his book, Start With Why, and I encourage you to read this if you haven't already, or watch his TED Talk, which is a nice synthesis of it, and basically says the most successful corporations, individuals, whatever, whatever you, you name it, start with their, their purpose, their sense of why, and then they build everything around that. Angela Duckworth also talks about this in her book, Grit. Um, I used to think grit was just working hard and being perseverant, but she's, she talks about how that's not enough, that, that that will burn out over time, and that you have to keep that flame lit with a sense of purpose and passion for what you're doing. And, and I definitely see uh, where she's at. It's a very compelling argument, and, and she has a lot of um, science to back that up. And so I would strongly encourage you to read this book if you haven't. It's a great read. So I'm gonna wrap up um, the last few minutes before we launch into the Q&A. And I just wanna touch back to some of the work that um, Shanna Felt has done. So he talks about this kind of incongruence between our values in medicine and then the reality. <clears throat> and I think using this as a framework to try to figure out how we can combat, or excuse me, combat burnout and foster wellness in the future is really important. So some examples that he cites are, there's this value that we trust physicians, they're professionals, but the reality is that there's a lot of documentation we have to deal with, we have to justify our billing to insurance companies, we have to um, you know, basically cover ourselves to prevent malpractice suits. And so this sends this message of that we're actually not trusted. We say in our society that physicians are highly trained, they're very expensive, but we, we, our time is actually used for things like clerical activities and um, other things that are inefficient and really isn't flexing our, our brains as much as we should be. And so this is kind of sending a message of our time is not valuable. We are now starting to say that self-care is really important. We need to eat more, we need to sleep more, et cetera. Um, and uh, the reality is that in our training, and I think I would say, you know, this extends into practice that we work excessively work seems to come first quite often. We don't take care of ourselves, we don't eat right, we don't sleep enough, we don't exercise enough. And so this sends this message that self-care is actually not that important. We say that to air is human, but the reality is that we're expected to be perfectionists and that vulnerability and a sense of low self-compassion, um, you know, can really kind of uh, change the dynamic. And this sends this message that we're supposed to be superhuman. So how can anyone, you know, live a life without burning out when they're being held to that standard? So those are just some examples of some kind of incongruities, again, with values and the reality. And Shanfeld talks about kind of what is the current state and what should the ideal future state look like. So for example, right now, we look at self-neglect, self-sacrifice, but really we should be focusing on self-care. We tend to be somewhat isolated in our profession, but we need to foster a support network, both personally and professionally. We tend to be very tired, we work long hours, but we need to focus on healthy rest and sleep habits. There in the past have been barriers to seeking mental health, some stigma surrounding that, but we need to eliminate that stigma. 
asking for help has been a sign of weakness. I remember that hearing that mantra as a trainee and I didn't train that long ago. But we need to develop a culture in which vulnerability is accepted. Right now there's this kind of no limits on workload, this failure to acknowledge the impact of adverse events. If you have a complication, does anyone really reach out to you to ask how you're doing? In the past there's, uh, and I would argue the present state, um, right now we could do better. We need to develop systems that really acknowledge that we are human and that we do have limitations. And when mistakes do happen or errors occur, we need to recognize that and support our colleagues. Right now, we're dealing with a lot of clerical burden. We need to try to limit that. Work seems to always come first for many, and we need to have a more balanced sense of work-life integration. And some would argue that the professional environment in medicine is really eroding this sense of purpose and this sense of altruism. So we need to foster that. We need to cultivate our meaning, our purpose, and our altruism. So it's important to recognize that once a culture is mature, it can be purposefully changed. And Shanfeld talks about this concept of managed evolution. And this basically means that some beliefs and values really, they have to be deliberately dropped. This has to be very conscientious. Um, new ones have to be adopted. So one could argue, for example, telehealth. I think there were many people who poo-pooed the idea of telehealth before the COVID pandemic, but now we're seeing that it's actually an exciting, wonderful tool. And then some values need to be transformed altogether. And I think the hardest part of all this is just coming to terms with what our culture looks like right now um, and what's taken for granted. And then again, very conscientiously um, making decisions on what needs to be changed. I think now is really a great time to do that, especially um, as we are trying to um, you know, live through this, this crisis. So just a few take-home points. Um, physicians, as we well know, are at higher risk for burnout compared to the general population. Urologists, particularly residents and young urologists, exhibit higher rates of burnout compared to other medical specialties. Urology residency programs really need to be proactive in fostering a culture of wellness and providing the tools to combat burnout, not only throughout training, but throughout practice. And we, we, this is still a really young field. We need to continue to study the battle against burnout in urology and delineate a roadmap for progress. So I wanna thank you all for your attention today. We have um, several minutes for questions and Katie will help organize those. And I, I really look forward to some further discussion. Um, here's my email, so please feel free to reach out to me. I'm um, very passionate about this topic and residency training in general, so I'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to complete our COVID lecture survey. And I hope you'll look out for, um, we plan to send a survey to ask you some questions regarding your wellness. And so I hope you'll look out for that and complete that as well. Again, thank you so much for your attention today. Thank you so much, Dr. Kraft, for the interesting <laughs> lecture. And thank you for all of the efforts that you do to improve our resident wellness. Um, it's particularly striking to learn that urology residents are impacted by burnout more so than other specialties. So um, jumping into the questions here, the first one is about how do you minimize burnout or frustration among urology residents, particularly juniors, especially in the background of increasing number of unnecessary inpatient consults, need for clinic coverage, and other tasks that may not be um, as useful in our residency training. 
Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think what we've done here at Michigan, and again, I don't claim to be an expert, but we're always conscientious of these things, is we've tried to create a culture of, um, you know, not every clinic needs to be covered, not every OR needs to be covered. We have a huge faculty, so we have 40 plus clinical faculty. So our faculty to resident um, ratio is two to one, essentially. Um, and so it's really hard to expect that everything's going to get covered. And uh, I tell the residents, you know, we need to prioritize what's most educational for you. Um, and I think adding that, well, first of all, I think the consult race helps incentivize the consult. And Katie, I, I would love to hear your perspective, but um, I think it helps incentivize the consults tremendously. It makes it fun. It makes a game out of it. And I'm not saying every program needs to buy MacBooks for their residents to see consults, but do something that does make it fun, make a game out of it, incentivize it in some way. Um, and I also think recognizing that we overtly recognize that our residents are people too, um, by saying, you know, you can have that protected half day each week. And what that's going to look like, you know, post COVID is yet to be determined because obviously everyone wants to stay ramped up and, and get back in the OR. Um, but we can, we do intend to continue that. And I think, um, I think recognizing that your time is precious sends a message that, you know, we value you very much. And, and it's, it's that sense of value that I think is really important. So that would be my answer to that question. But I don't know, Katie, if you have any other thoughts from your perspective. Um, well, I definitely think that console race is one particular way that it reduces, it makes yeah, see some of the, the scut work that can be involved with consults a lot more fun. And, um, it, in, and it incentivizes you to be more efficient and to kind of figure out ways to work quickly and, um, and then, you know, brag about the glory when you have the most number <laughs> <That's right. laughs> there, There's a trophy that goes along with it too, so yeah. that helps too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you, have, you book the three ORs, you're like excited to brag that you got the triple crown for the day. So, yeah. um, but um, another question here is, uh, sometimes people fear trainee wellness interventions will lead to reduced commitment from trainees or if reducing hours, less prepared residents will graduate. How can interventions be structured to preserve training and commitment standards? Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. So, well, first of all, I'll say that uh, notwithstanding the ACGME mandates that you have to have wellness interventions. So that's uh, something that all your programs should have. Um, the way that we've made it work is that we, we kind of do a little sprinkle of different things. So um, we have incorporated some things into our didactics. Um, for example, our you know, session on the Office of Counseling and Workplace Resilience is at the beginning of the year. Um, and we incorporate that into kind of our scheduled didactics. So that helps to, in terms of the, the burden of time. Um, and then all of our our kind of more, <clears throat> excuse me, off-campus wellness events are completely optional. So I always tell all our residents, you don't have to do this. This is up to you if you want to join the group. Um, it's not mandatory in any way, but I've always been very taken aback with the, the interest and how people want to get involved. And I, I, I do think it's a nice way to just take a break and um, not think about work and do something fun together as a group. So that helps, uh, helps quite a bit. So we kind of um, mix it in, in terms of structure and unstructured, and it seems to work, at least so far. Um, can you re-explain the definition of depersonalization? Yeah, so depersonalization is kind of this sense of feeling like you're outside of yourself, like you're outside of either your mind, body, or spirit. 
Um, at least that's kind of the you know, psychological definition of it. And again, it's considered one of the three facets of burnout. Mm. Um, older physicians will often point out that most current residents are millennials who tend to value time with family, work, family and work-life balance, et cetera. Do you feel that this is playing a role in the perceived burnout rates? Their perception, the older so, generation. I, so you saw from the studies that uh, I showed from Georgetown that spending time with family is protective against burnout. That's really important. I think that the, the one major takeaway that I've had from, at least from kind of our recent circumstances, are that nothing is more important than each other and our loved ones. Um, and you have to you have to use that as your center um those older urologists and physicians who are saying that family you know all that's not important or may not be as important consider that those are the ones that are responding to these surveys that are burnt out uh, i mean we are we're actively dealing with a, a crisis of burnout in urology and i think it's because we've had this culture over recent years that's been rather negative and I hope that we can reshape that culture much like I talked about with the managed evolution. Um, I hope that we can kind of reshift that. Now there is, there is no getting around that you do need to spend and invest time and energy into your training. Um, you know, that, that's just the way it is. But at the same time, uh, I don't think that we should undervalue time with family. Um, it is a, a bit of trying to find that balance and residency is hard. I mean, it's a really tough time There's a reason it's called residency it used to be that residents would literally live in the hospital it used to be residents weren't allowed to be married um, but I think that that in order to be um, Able to take good care of your patients. You have to take good care of yourself I always use the oxygen mask analogy that you got to put your own mask on first um, and try to try to strike that balance where you do invest, you know, your heart and soul into your residency, but but also spend take that time and carve it out and be intentional about spending time with family, whether it's on a Zoom chat or you know, being at home. Um, but I, I we will shift this culture, um, and so I, that that is something that I hope that um, we will see very soon. Mm -hmm. And kind of a follow-up question from that, any thoughts on how to change the mindset of some older physicians that say, you know, we survived, so so can you, or so should you? Yeah, I mean, again, I would argue that those are the physicians that are answering these questions that are burnt out, and time, you know, times do change, and I, I do recognize there's a bit of kind of a generational gap. I, I kind of straddle the, the generations, and so I see, see it from both sides, and um, I would say like any movement, you just, somebody's got to be the first to stand up, right? So the, you know, civil rights movement started with people kind of protesting and, um, you know, one, one person at a time and, and then, you know, eventually led to the current culture that we live in today. So I would argue that any, any major change that we want to make um, in our culture is just going to take kind of one person at a time. So while I don't recommend defiance, I do recommend that you stand up for what you believe in and if you feel that family or personal time or other things are important um just uh shake off those comments as best you can and and pursue that because that's really important mm -hmm. um we in one of the studies that you presented looked at how um the feeling of burnout was related to medical errors are those medical errors that um individuals make or is it medical errors are observed on, from the whole team 
Uh, good question. So this, um, so there were two studies I quoted on medical errors. The first was um, just the self-reported medical errors, their perception of, of committing medical errors um, themselves. Um, and then the second one was, and that was physicians in general. The second one was um, specifically, uro excuse me, general surgery residents. Um, again, uh, perception of their own medical errors. Although I don't know that the survey really teased out the specifics there, but the idea was testing the, um, or surveying the perception of their own medical errors, if that answers the question. Mm -hmm. um, there is a question here about, um, so if a higher workload is associated with burnout, has anyone ever looked at um, the effect that more vacation time away from work instead of just implementing an 80-hour work week would have? Residents in Europe have more vacations and therefore more time with family and away from work. And a lot of residents that in the, uh, the U.S. Uh, train far away from where they live, wondering if instead of limiting the weekly work week, it would be better to move to more uh, vacations to decrease burnout. Yeah, um, that's a good thought. I've never, I mean, I haven't heard it uh, put that way because I've, you know, everyone talks about the work hours, but maybe it's um, not so much how much you work, but how much you rest. Um, I, and it, I see variability in that across institutions. At U of M, we, our house officers get four weeks a year. Um, where I trained, we had three weeks. I think that extra week makes a big difference. So I'm sure some of you at your institutions probably have variability and how much vacation time you get. So um, I definitely think there's value in time off. Now, the reality is that you do have to consider um, training requirements and there are a certain number of weeks per year that you have to work in order to be bored to sit for your boards. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I definitely see where that question is coming from. I think that's a good, good thought and good perspective to have. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question here. It says, I'm a resident who's focused my research on resident burnout, specifically in neurology. We're also lucky to have a program director as invested as you are. I found that literature is very mixed on improvements in burnout with better sleep, exercise, and diet. The only times I've seen interventions that actually led to improvement is with lasting program-wide changes. For example, at our institution, we've established a resident wellness fund where attendings voluntarily contribute for the sole purpose of our wellness. We have resident attending social group groups where the residents hang out with attendings outside of the hospital and in one-on-one -on -one, uh, mentorship meetings. These changes have led to reduction in burnout by about 50% um, over two years. And it's asking about what you think can be done for uh, meaningful, lasting changes. And I think you talked about some of the programs, you know, the, the components of our wellness program. Um, and it seems like, you know, we'll continue to do these things at our program to continue to make change. Yeah, that's why I talked about kind of what does the future have in store for us and um, this focus on purpose. And I think it's really important to not think about what you're doing, but um, just what is your overall culture. Um, eating more kale and sleeping more and doing more yoga is not going to decrease your burnout and increase your wellness, but it's all about your mindset and kind of um, why are you doing what you're doing? And when it gets hard, what is going to make you push through those difficult times? Um, so I love hearing hearing that and hearing that you've kind of started that culture shift um, in what sounds like in your program. And we're, we, we try to do the same. Um, and I always encourage our resident team to approach me if something's not working or if you think it's, you know, not worth your time, then let's change it. Let's make it your program. Um, and we buy our, you get, we get buy-in from our faculty too. So what's nice about my role is I, I kind of straddle both in, in terms of my 
relationship with the residents and then relationship with the rest of the faculty. And uh, we, are, we have been able to make some culture shifts in, in terms of perceiving what's important, um, especially now. And I think it's really important that you all do the same at your own programs. Um, and then someone's asking any interventions to help reduce the documentation for documentation burden for residents specifically. We talked about the scribe program, um, which was more seemed like focused on attendings. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it just depends. Uh, certainly it depends on what electronic health record you have. Um, I always talk about the importance of, um, you know, being really efficient with, we have Epic, so being really efficient with things like um, templated notes and smart phrases that you can plug in and um, using the you know dictaphone uh, the dragon system um, those those have drastically decreased my workload in clinic um, being able to kind of just click a button and then my entire note is done um, I would love to to not reinvent the wheel every year and have you know potentially have some sort of system where we just have like a bank of templates for and you guys probably do do this to some degree but you know mm -hmm. have kind of that bank of templates so that you try to find ways um to be more efficient another thing that i've done for a couple of our residents who struggled a little with documentation is have at the at the elbow help with um with our uh, information technology service because you can actually bring in a, a, an epic um, expert basically who can be with you as you're working and kind of help um, create smart sets and um you know templated notes and uh i i asked for help in creating my case requests and things like that so it's literally just a radio button that i click and it's done um, and that it was a lot of work up front but it went a long way so i'd encourage you um, for those of you um, who especially as you go into practice to maybe ask your information technology experts to sit with you um, and work out ways that you can try to streamline and make the medical record work for you. Um, I hear a lot of complaining about it from you know different generations and I would say if you just invest the time and effort it really can uh, you really can leverage it in a way that it can be pretty efficient. I would definitely second that part of our, our quality improvement projects um, for at least the first and second years have mostly focused on improving documentation, efficiency of documentation, order things like that. And while it is a big work burden, it's completely worth it. And that's all of our questions that we have posted. Okay, okay perfect so. timing because it's just at the hour. So, well, thank you all so much for bearing with me in a slightly different topic, but I hope you all learned something and enjoyed the talk. And Again, um, my uh, email, I posted that. So I'm happy to answer any questions in the future. Feel free to reach out. Thank you. Good luck to you all. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.